<laughs> oh jeez. That is uh, a great start. We're rusty. <laughs> that is a fantastic start. <coughs> uh. <laughs> Happy New Year, James. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the 73rd episode of Total Pop Mode, your weekly comedy gaming podcast. My name is Will, and I also go by Hoodafunk, and I'm joined here by my good friend, co-host, and fellow gaming enthusiast, James, aka Mr. Bames. What's going on, guys? Coming up this episode, we've got our weekly regular games catch-up, followed by the weekly gaming news, where we discuss two record-breaking stories this week, and we'll round off the episode with the long-awaited return to Completionist Corner. And what better way to make a return than to go back to the series that started the whole thing, That's right, we're kicking off the new year with part one of the third and final chapter in the Mass Effect trilogy. Hell yeah! Oh, that was a long sentence. (laughs) Before all of that, it's time for the socials. You can, as always, find the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and pretty much anywhere else you get your podcasts by searching for Total Pop Mode. We also post regular video content of our playthroughs, stream highlights, as well as the podcast on our YouTube channel, Total Pod Mode. You can also find us on X by searching for at Total Pop Mode, all one word. And whilst you're there, you can find me at Mr. Bames, and I'm also on Twitch under twitch.tv forward slash Mr. Bames underscore TPM. And you can find me at Hoodafunk on X, and I'm also on Twitch under twitch.tv forward slash Hoodafunk. Okay, James, as is tradition, we're kicking off the episode with a catch-up. What have you been playing over the last couple of weeks? I guess the first thing is very, very quickly touch on when you even go into it. A little bit of gaming news from over Christmas. I uh, did manage to get my 100% back in Wolong. Nice, lovely little DLC, finish that off. Yeah, polish off the DLC, good, good. I played some more Pokemon Violet when I went and visited my mum over Christmas. Started that again, finished that again. Very good. Oh, nice. Okay. Did the post game this time too. Did you not bother with the post game the first time around? Nah, because I kind of just put it down after that. Okay. Um, but I got through this a lot quicker because I didn't spend ages looking for Pokemon of the right nature with the right ability and all that good stuff because I know you can change sure it later. So, <laughs> which I didn't know the first time. <laughs> all right. Okay. Yeah, yeah, fine. Um. So, yeah, just got through it much quicker. But good times. Thought about buying the DLC, didn't. Right, yeah. I have heard the DLC came out fairly recently. The second part, yeah. I was uh, wondering if you might get back into it because it was near Christmas time. Yeah, I thought about it. I thought about it, but I didn't actually go back to it. But that was then. This is now. Over the last week or so, I've played a couple of games. I tried out Halls of Torment, one of the Christmas gifts you got me. Oh, nice one. Okay. How did you find it? Uh, It's Vampire Survivors. (laughs) That's that's very good. I, I don't think it's quite as good personally right okay there's a lot of facets to it that make it interesting and different enough but it is vampire survivors fine um it's kind of reminds me a lot of diablo one in terms of its presentation that sort of graphical style and uh, the way that at least one of the dungeons or maybe two of the dungeons that i've played i've only unlocked four so far i'm i've only put six hours into it so it's quite quite good um but it's got that feel that i really like um the class systems that you get kind of similar to that instead of named characters like you had in vampire survivors you get like the mage the archer the wizard you know it's things like that the quest system which is something that i know you sort of mentioned you'd be quite interested to see what that's about Yeah, Uh, yeah it's kind of similar to the achievements that are in vampire survivors i don't think it's called achievements i can't remember what it's called but things like get to level 80 with such and such a character sure thing. kill this many characters with this weapon it is things right. like that dressed up a little bit more questy which is right, kind of cool okay. and you know how you get random encounters in some of the vampire survivors levels where you might randomly unlock a character by doing some shit? 
Yeah. There's that yeah. sort of thing as well. And But if you find something like a tome or a quest giver, it kind of pauses your game and brings up a little text box window type thing. <laughs> All right. back in so it's got an RPG feel to it. Yes. Yeah, but yeah. a lot of that is probably marketing and promotion and stuff. It is basically Vampire Survivors, which isn't a bad thing. It's Vampire Survivors with a bit of a Diablo wraparound. Even down basically. to the UI and things like that of the game, it does look very... Or I imagine it would look very familiar to anyone that's played Diablo before. I think the health bar... Like little circular orb thing is basically copy yeah, and paste. It's a dead giveaway. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, it's good. Like, if you enjoy Vampire Survivors, you definitely enjoy this. Right, I yeah. personally prefer Vampire Survivors. The soundtrack's a lot more catchier. It's a little bit quicker in terms of action. Fair enough. And the powers that you can unlock, are, I, I feel, are more impressive in Vampire Survivors. You get the same sort of thing in um, Halls of Torment. Like, there's one where you can get orbs floating around you, very similar to the holy bible yeah yeah. there's like something this radiant which is like a a circle around you that every five seconds let's say for the sake of argument like emits a flash and hurts enemies it's basically the garlic they do have a lot of similarities but they're different enough and uh, it's quite a cheap game so definitely worth that price sounds like if you're craving more vampire survivors and you've done everything there is to do in that game this one might be worth a look it's definitely worth a look. What about the bosses in the game? Are there any bosses that you show down against? Uh, so in terms of the bosses, I've only survived one level to beyond the time limit. Okay, um, yeah, yeah. And it's kind of like the Reaper that comes at the end of that, but it's called, I think, a Lord of Something. So the first one's the Lord of Pain. I right, think, it, I okay. think it was. I can't remember exactly what it was, but it's, some, it's like that, but it's the same sort of thing. One right, enemy right. comes in. It doesn't quite come straight to your character and just instantly kill you. It tries to kill you with magic and stuff. Fine, okay. So it is more of a boss fight than a reaper that wants to end your run sort of thing. Sure thing. It sounds like you've got a bit more of a chance of surviving rather than instantly dying in your early run-throughs of Vampire Survivors. Oh, 100%. Yeah, if you can make it to the time limit in the first dungeon, which is the one I did, the final boss bit isn't as hard as the reaper stuff. But what I will say is it does seem like the waves of enemies get a lot bigger quicker in Halls of Torment. Right, okay. Okay. Um, So it it kind of balances in that way, I think. It's slightly slower paced, but you probably get more enemies on your screen at once. But again, it could just be a trick of the dimensions. Who knows? Sure thing. Oh, well, I mean, it's definitely intrigued me, man. I think I, I will absolutely pick this one up for myself at some point. It's been on my list for a while now. I'm not quite sure why I didn't pick it up for myself uh, at the same time that I got it for you. You were using me as a test guinea pig, mate. Yeah, you were kind of like, I was dipping my toes into the water via you. Yeah. <laughs> I've still got quite a few things to do in Vampire Survivors with the DLC. And because I picked it up on pc with all of the dlc i think that's probably the way to go and i'll have to kind of start from the beginning again well yeah i did dabble with it a a month or two ago but didn't get very far at all compared to the mobile playthrough which is like completely finished at this point yeah oh hey if you ever want that change of scenery as you said earlier it's a good alternative nice one man have you played anything else this week uh so the only other game that i'll talk about uh is a game called stray blade which is kind of a souls likey type game come RPG kind of think of a souls like in the style of Kingdoms of Amalur. Okay. Sounds yeah. interesting. I'm intrigued. What's it like? It was good fun, man. Um, I, I did finish it. It is not the highest budget, I wouldn't say, but they've done very well with it. I think it's very charming. You know, I love that style of graphics anyway. I, I like Kingdoms of Amalur a lot. 
Um, combat smooth, very cool. Um, the way that you level up is quite interesting as well. You don't have stats like vitality, strength, dexterity, or whatever. Right. Okay. You get various weapons in the game, and you have to master them to unlock a skill point associated with them. And you unlock weapons by beating loads of enemies or finding them in chests and whatnot. And then there's legendary weapons that you find sort of scattered around later on. It's a Metroidvania kind of thing as well. So you're constantly going back to areas when you unlock new powers and things like that. Okay, okay. And the only skill points you have are things like increased damage on your light attack, increased damage on your heavy attack, increased damage on your special attack. Uh, Blocking doesn't take as much stamina. Uh, there are health and energy ones as well, but it's more things like that. And then you unlock other, like, very few other things later down the line. Sounds a bit more like what I would call, like, a uh, early God of War skill tree type thing rather than actually having attributes. Yeah, there's no attribute like, screen at all. Yeah, it sounds much more like a kind of an action-based style skill system in the game where you're just kind of picking from various perks and upgrades to get rather than uh, boosting stats to level with other ones. Not so much number crunching. That's going to appeal to some people. Yeah, and you can max out very easily. Right, okay. So you're clearly intended to fill out everything as well. I think if you kill enough stuff, if you tried to rush the game, you probably wouldn't hit everything. But the order you can do stuff in is dictated by what order you find the weapons as well, which can make it quite interesting. Okay, okay. But I found all the weapons and unlocked it, you know, so I managed to get a full skill tree anyway. Doesn't make that much difference when you get higher in levels, honestly. The initial ones make a huge difference to your damage output. Do you have any weapons that you favour particularly? Uh, I've had my favourites, yeah, but because you're constantly switching to level up when you find new ones, right, you, you okay. end up trying all of them, so it's quite easy to find favourites. My favourite one was it's called the Knight Sword, and it was a sword and shield type deal. All right, okay. Uh, it was just good because it had a decent enough range, did quite a good amount of damage, was relatively quick to swing, and had, I think, a few less frames on its animation, which meant you could then dodge or block quicker. Because the combat style is Souls-like, yeah, sort of quick yeah. step, time your dodge is perfect, you earn back more energy and uh, energy being stamina and yeah it was quite good fun the bosses weren't very hard the final boss was quite hard but the bosses leading up to it I, I did them all first time I think no that's a lie I did all of them bar one first time and the only reason I didn't do the other one that I didn't do first time first time is because I didn't get the gimmick straight away right okay okay and then the final boss as I say was a challenge died to that a few times so felt good when I finished it and the story is quite nice I thought very very briefly you're a character called Farron West and you are an explorer and you stumble across this valley that everyone's been looking for you find this huge source of energy it kind of explodes when you try and walk through and uh, okay. you get a stone embedded in your chest and that's how you can revive constantly that's that's the law of that reason and you're now linked yeah. to the valley and then adventures ensue from there so yeah it's quite a fun little game i probably spent about 20 hours in it uh, i did restart once because of course i did would recommend uh, if you find it on sale or even if you want to pay full price and i think it's like a 25 pound game maybe would recommend and the name of it once again for the people the name of it was stray blade there you go Give it a go. But that's about me for my catch-up this week, man. How about you? What have you been playing? Uh, so this week I'm still finishing off uh, one of the games that I got for Christmas this year, which was the Metal Gear Solid Master Collection Volume 1 on the Nintendo Switch. Oh, nice, yes. Uh, I have heard that there were some reported issues with the performance, and I'm pretty pleased to say that I haven't really noticed anything thus far. Though admittedly, when I went back and played the original UK release of Metal Gear Solid 1, for some reason it felt like the frame rate was lower on that than it was when I played the Integral Edition. And the Integral Edition is something that I wanted to talk about because it's a version of Metal Gear Solid 1 that I never had the opportunity to play. It was a Japanese-only release. Uh, you're able to have both the Japanese and the... Uh, 
uh, English subtitles if you want. So I was able to switch it back to English so I could still understand what was going on. Was the voice acting in Japanese though still? You can download the Japanese version, I believe, but I did keep the uh, American audio version that I had. You need to download a separate Japanese audio pack for a lot of these games on the edition. And it's kind of treated as DLC that you can get. It's obviously free, uh, but you do need the game to have access to it. Uh, I imagine that'd be quite amusing. I would really like to go yeah. back and play those games in Japanese because they're so familiar to me in English that I'd be really curious to see what the voice actors sounded exactly. like in the kind of original interpretation of what the game would be. I have heard, obviously, what Snake sounds like in the past. I have watched Japanese versions, but going back and being able to hear some of the voices that I recognize so well, uh, like Naomi Hunter, Colonel Campbell, Otacon, being able to hear what those guys were voiced like in the Japanese version would be really cool. It's something that I haven't delved into just yet, but I'll definitely be doing that at some point in the future on one of my subsequent runs. Because if anyone knows me, they know that I really like to go back to these games and play them over repeatedly (laughs) especially all the different versions that i can now get my hands on thanks to this collection yeah if there was ever a version that had an extra minute of dialogue we would play it through it like absolutely extra minute (laughs) no doubt Yeah. yeah it's just not enough for me at this point to go back and watch a youtube video about those different outcomes i want to kind of experience all of it for myself uh so going back and playing the integral edition on metal gear solid one was a real blast very very familiar territory there i think i completed it in about three and a half hours skipping through quite a lot of the dialogue uh and just kind of proceeding through the game and like i said being able to play it on the integral edition was a real blast because it unlocks additional features in the game like a first person mode that you can use to walk around the levels the control scheme on it isn't particularly well suited placing yourself in first person all the time in metal gear solid one definitely wasn't an intended feature yeah you struggled to look around corners wouldn't you yeah it's things like that as well as just your overall movement you can't strafe while you're walking so you just have to kind of walk forward and steer a bit like a car yeah (laughs) so yeah it's it's definitely not the way to play when you're in an environment full of enemies but it is really novel to walk around the environments and see it from a constant changing first person perspective yeah see all those pixels a lot closer honestly i feel like even though the resolution of that game is incredibly low I think that it has aged remarkably well when you take into account things like the supremely high quality of the voice acting that I mentioned before, along with the cinematography of the cutscenes. It does look very low resolution, but I think that it still does stand up to the test of time in a lot of ways. So after blasting my way through Metal Gear Solid 1, I moved on to Metal Gear Solid 2. He's insatiable, people. Yeah, I just couldn't get enough of it, really. It took me... A short while to adapt because there are some minor control changes between one and two, most notably around the way that you can use cover in the game, in the way that you peek around corners as well. It controls slightly differently, as well as the fact that you've got a few more movement options in Metal Gear Solid 2. You can now do like a forward roll or like a forward spin. And you've also got the ability to hang off of railings and ledges and drop down and re-grab ledges and do a bit of mantling stuff. So that makes quite a difference uh, in terms of the gameplay and some of the approaches that you can use to sneak around levels. I was really enjoying myself in Metal Gear Solid 2 because I was playing it as if it was my first time ever playing and trying to kind of discover things that on a usual run I might normally just walk past in the uh, objective of just being quick and getting through the level. I see you took your time a lot more with this one rather than the complete blast through one. Definitely. You were stopping to smell the roses this time. Yeah, yeah. 
mostly because I feel like there really isn't anything in one that I've yet to discover. And to be fair, that's probably true for two as well. However, it was a bit more of like uh, kind of reminding myself of just how much attention to detail they put into the game. One of the things I noticed, for instance, is uh, you'll remember from the first game, guards will detect your footprints in the snow if you walk around. And that was a really impressive feature to me back in the PlayStation 1 days. And that is obviously replicated in this one because they can see your wet footprints. But there's also things in the environment that you can disturb, like, for instance, plant pots and magazines. They'll actually notice if those have been beaten up and they'll call in to say that something suspicious has been going on. Yeah, well, if you're beating up a plant pot, that's pretty suspicious. Yeah, it is slightly odd behaviour, I will admit. We've all done it in a game, though, haven't we? Just walking past and punching something, just like, ah, f*** <laughs> you, wall. I mean... I guess the point I'm trying to get across here is the fact that in a lot of modern day games, uh, you will do stuff like you can shoot a plant pot or you can put a bullet hole in a wall and the guards will continue to walk past and won't notice so long as you haven't done it within their immediate sight. Oh, it's because they disappear in, after a while. Yeah, yeah. But in uh, Metal Gear Solid 2, they really do react to that stuff. So if you have missed them with a shot and even whether they're not necessarily an earshot of the bullet whizzing past them, they can still notice the fact that there's a bullet hole or a crack in the glass or magazines have been disturbed and things like that. That's quite cool, to be fair. It's things like that that I started to really appreciate and that I don't necessarily do typically because I'm quite focused on moving through the games quite quickly but stopping to smell the roses or uh, maybe just beat the shit out of the roses it was actually a nice reminder of just how much detail there is in the game always good when you can sort of get a new playthrough almost of a game that you know so well there's a whole lot of nostalgia going into these games as well as some small features that i never really did as a kid that i've actually gone back and finally completed now there's an opportunity in the game for you to find a, a shaver in metal gear solid 2 as raiden when you're playing in the second chapter of the game and you give it to uh solid snake at a certain point in the game and it just means that later on he's uh clean shaven as opposed to having the new beard that he has in metal gear solid 2 so if you give him the shaver he more closely resembles the solid snake in the first game and and it's just tiny things like that that I have heard about on YouTube. But like I said, I want to go back and yeah. <laughs> experience, see those things for myself. That's the most Kojima thing I've ever heard, though. <laughs> Doesn't add anything except for a different character model, but it's cool. Yeah, you just, yeah, it, it's kind of like a, a nod to his previous games, exactly. which is, yeah, extremely Kojima-like. Yeah. yeah. So I've yet to start Metal Gear Solid 3 or, or any of the other titles on that collection. I'm still playing through the very final chapters of number two and just having a blast as I always do. Nothing really new to report here. Uh, just going back to one of my classic favorites. Metal Gear, good. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. I guess, if anything, I, I don't necessarily make a tradition out of it, but I know that you play Pokemon for sort of like, uh, I guess, like nostalgia reasons around Christmas time. I kind of had like a similar kind of thing with Metal Gear Solid as well. It's just a, it's an old, comfortable game to get into. Yeah by the fire <laughs> i feel that i feel that and other than that i will say that although i haven't played any games that you got me i have played one game that i got you oh, uh, nice. i have actually played a little bit of uh, lethal company oh, yeah. since we last spoke and uh having a good time with it it's uh pretty spooky it's very fun to play with a buddy when you're using the in-game audio because it is fully surround as in, if you're treating it with a pair of headphones, it's actually a very good way to locate your teammates because I can specifically tell if your voice is coming from behind me or to the left or right of me. It's all proximal to distance, so the further you get away from me, it fades out. 
And also, if you travel into another area that I'm not in, then I just won't be able to hear you unless we're operating walkie-talkies that you can purchase in the game. That's quite smart. Also, uh, playing with my buddy Liam, shout out Liam, uh, he got attacked by like a giant, what looked like a cross between a centipede and like a grub or some sort of worm. It wrapped around his face and then all I could hear was his muffled speech as opposed That's to cool as well. regular voice. So. There are different areas in the game that will change your voice as well. If you're in like uh, a echoey area, your voice will echo. And the fact that the enemies uh, will smother you and stop you from being able to call out, I think is a really cool use of uh, some of the in-game voice chat stuff. We did kind of cover it on the Christmas special, but I'll just explain to give people who haven't listened to that a quick bit of context. The main aim of the game is your space astronauts landing on moons, gathering resources, and there is a bunch of spooky enemies and deadly things that you can encounter. Pretty much everything that you encounter that is new uh, should be assumed as deadly in this game. It really is kind of like uh, the worst occupation you can imagine, uh, going around scrapping on some of these moons. And that is your goal, is to collect scrap and bring it back to your ship in order to meet your three or four day quota and if you fail your quota you die yeah they shoot you out on airlock yeah. uh, if you <laughs> it's cutthroat mate you need to be making money yeah the company is brutal in this game that said uh it is a fun game to play it's a really good one to play with mates uh we'll definitely have to link up at some point and put that on good times guaranteed nice too and uh but it sounds a bit a worthy winner of the more fun with friends steam award so i'm sure we'll pick that one up together in the future uh but in the meantime as well i'm definitely going to be delving into that off pod as well and i'm looking forward to seeing what different monsters i can encounter because there's a lot of stuff that i've seen in the promos that uh, i've actually yet to encounter so looking forward to finding out just what this game's fully about i feel like i've only scratched the surface but that is me for the catch-up this week as well, so it's time to move on to the weekly gaming news. So our first story of this week. A gamer in the United States of America has beaten Tetris for the first time. Oh, I didn't even know Tetris could be beaten. I thought it's a game that just relentlessly beats you. <laughs> well, that may be uh, the common opinion of the layman to Tetris, however... Tetris has actually been technically beaten times before in the game, depending on your perspective of it. And we'll delve into that a little bit just in this story. But before we get into that, I'll just go over the top. A 13-year-old that goes by the name of Willis Gibson has become the first human player to ever beat Tetris since its release over 30 years ago. Now, this headline is somewhat misleading in the sense that it's actually impossible to beat Tetris, as it was designed to be an endless game. The actual achievement is in being the first human player to get so far in the 1985 version of the beloved classic that caused the game to actually crash and that's what i was referring to at the start there you know it's not designed to be beaten it just beats you eventually no. yeah that is definitely supposed to be uh the kind of the issue of the game and it actually gets to the point where roughly around level 29 in the game whilst using conventional control methods it's almost impossible to beat the game because you literally just can't move the blocks left or right enough yeah. fast enough uh, considering the speed that they're dropping. But uh, for years now, people have managed to figure out ways to get past uh, those issues in the game. And obviously, a lot of people are playing more modern versions, which fix some of the issues that the original game had. This is a run on the original Tetris. Um, warts and all. Nice. Being able to play so far into the game actually renders the vanilla game's inbuilt scoreboard to become useless, as the highest score possible in this version is 999,999. The counter limited to a maximum of six digits, can no longer count any higher. 
There are ways to go above a score of 999,999, although this requires the use of a game genie or other software to change the code of the game, allowing scores of over 1 million to be represented using letters as well as numbers. Although the average person as a new player is unlikely to find achieving a score of over 100,000 an easy task, Willis, who goes by Blue Scooty on YouTube, was able to not only set the line world record, the level world record, but also caused the game to implode by sheer skill at the game in just under 39 minutes. Real bad man. The game itself crashes when the line of code used to dictate the overall score in the game becomes too complicated and therefore the game is unable to calculate a score without the action timing out, scrambling the code of the game and causing it to crash. For anyone who's interested in further details of how that works, there's actually a really great video on YouTube by a guy named Hydrant Dude who can explain a lot better than I can. So this is actually a very impressive feat for a gamer to be able to beat the scores of several well-known Tetris players such as Pixelandy and Eric ICX, and even more impressive given his interest in the game is only really documented back to 2021, with his scores reaching professional levels back in February of 2023. That is a hacker, mate. <laughs> he's using aimbots. Yeah, it's just... <laughs> he's just, he's just using a task hacks on his Tetris. It's just tasks. That's all it is. <laughs> So this is actually uh, a score uh, set by a human for the first time. Obviously, AI has been able to uh, perform this action way, way before this. This is the first time that a human has ever been able to set all of those records whilst simultaneously crashing the game due to a score that is so high that the game can no longer compute it and blows itself up. Yeah, pretty impressive. I would say that pretty much constitutes beating the game, perhaps more so than any other game in the history of games. That really is beating the game. That is destroying the game, quite literally. The real question is, well, did he get end credits? <laughs> there were not end credits. Then he didn't finish the count. game. Yeah. <laughs> Case closed. <laughs> Clearly getting a score of 999,999 and probably more. It's still f***ing impressive, let's be real. Way more, infinitely more. He, uh, I think that his actual record was something like six or maybe even eight million. Not on the original it's Tetris, just, right? Yeah, on the original Tetris. It's no longer able to count the score, but you are able to use software running alongside it oh, to count right, the score beyond okay. that. As I said before, the, the timer on the score is literally six digits maximum, so you can only get that 999,999 right. as a pure maximum in terms of the number, but if you can use software alongside it, it can calculate the score that you're racking up still. Oh, fair. Well, yeah. The point still stands. Even getting to that number is still impressive. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah. There's very few people in the world that can max out Tetris. Yeah, geez. A million points in Tetris, <laughs> and you're saying it goes up to like six million potentially? Like, respect. Props to that young man. Yeah. I think I got like 400,000 once, and I was like, oh, hell yeah. <laughs> That's probably not true. But I feel like I got quite a high score back in the day that was like nothing, not even close to that shit. You know? So I did actually try and look before the podcast to figure out what an average Joe uh, Tetris score is. And it was actually kind of around what you were saying. I was seeing anywhere from like as low as 12,000 being pretty good for a new player, uh, all the way up to around the 400,000 mark. Oh, fair. That, no. was, that was genuinely the range oh, fair. Uh, of average Joe Tetris players. Oh, fair. Maybe I did then, but f***ing over double that score, which I thought was all, I thought I was the best player ever when I did that. <laughs> cool sh**. 
And uh, that one weirdly seems to have kind of broken its way into the mainstream stories as well. I actually first heard about this on uh, the BBC and uh, it just seems to have kind of worked its way into the mainstream. I think because there was a, a Sky News presenter that started talking shit about how it wasn't a uh, like worthy goal for a child to set sort of thing. And she was kind of like downplaying it and oh, wow. uh, kind of being uh, a bit sucky about it. And uh, yeah, I think there was quite a lot of backlash against her as well, which she is probably still perplexed about. But anyway, uh, moving on, I think it's time for Article 2 of this week. So it was a record year for Steam as well in 2023 as a result of 14,532 games that were released on the platform. Nice. What is it with all these numbers? I'm being forced to read a lot of difficult numbers this week. Oh, uh, wrote, I wish I could blame it on anyone except myself. Yeah. <laughs> I was the one that scripted this week. So. <laughs> Uh, yeah, what was I thinking? So uh, later on, we're only playing Mass Effect 3. You're good. Oh, thank God. Yeah, I can count to three. I think we're okay. Now, as we're probably all aware, a large volume of these 14,532 titles are likely cheaply made shovelware, as well as various reincarnations of adult games involving sexy elves and fairies. Nonetheless, this is still a record-breaking number. What, you mean 14,532? That is a big number, James. It sounds like it would be a record-breaking number. Yeah, it's a lot of games. Steam actually seems to have increased its offerings of new games year on year, with 2023 being its biggest year yet. 2023 also marked the year where Steam celebrated its 20th year of service as a storefront for its games. Damn. To compare to the 14,532 games released in 2023, 2022 delivered 12,561 new games. Well, so you're, t- you're telling me in 2023, 14,532 new games were released as opposed to 2022 when 12,561 new games were released? Exactly, James. Damn. And 2023 marked the fifth year in a row of an increase of new games on the platform. And with over 110 titles already released in 2024, will the trend continue? Is that true? Yeah. We're five, we're five days in. Yeah. And at, <laughs> yeah. at the time of recording, and 110 games have already been released. Like I said, man, it's yeah. all like weird succubus games and furry yeah, yeah. shit. I guarantee. You haven't looked. I, I guarantee. I, I assume. Yeah, uh, yeah. I assume. Yeah. This yeah. isn't. Yeah. My wish list is not preoccupied mostly <laughs> with weird stuff like that. To be fair, the other thing is mobile games because they're, I imagine, very easy to transfer onto PC, particularly Android stuff. You're probably right, yeah. yeah. Like I said, the, the other small portion of those 110 games is most likely shovelware. Yeah, exactly. Still, though, that's pretty mad. They've gone up by you know just under 2,000 games or just over 2,000 games from 2022. As in, they've done that number again plus another couple of thousand. It's like yeah, oh yeah. Insane. Pretty wild. Okay, so with that very numbery article out of the way, it's time to move on to our third and final article of the day. Just hours following the expiration of the copyright for early versions of Disney's Mickey Mouse, we're getting a Mickey Mouse horror game. The copyright for the 1928 Disney short film Steamboat Willie expired on New Year's Day of 2024. The film is a black and white short film featuring early non-speaking versions of Mickey and Minnie Mouse. Despite Disney's best efforts to extend the term before expiry, US law only permits copyright to be held for 95 years, meaning that early versions of Mickey and Minnie Mouse are now within the public domain, and the public are able to use these characters without the need to seek permission or pay a license cost. Mate, I've got a great idea for a new host for Total Podmind. <laughs> I think we can work in a little Mickey Mouse here and there. How's your Mickey Mouse? Well, actually, no, to be honest with you, he's not supposed to speak. This is an early version of Mickey Mouse, so we just need to work in a bunch of stupid cartoon sound effects to really sell it. I'm 
and to be fair, we and one of the points I'm going to make about this and how it's not quite as big as everyone seems to think is you won't be able to call it Mickey Mouse, right? Because Mickey Mouse will be trademarked by Disney. There's absolutely no way that they haven't got a trademark for that. You'll be able to use the character image, I'm sure, but you'll have to call it like Minky Mouse or something. You know, you'll have to do something clever with it. There's no way you can call it Mickey. There's no way. I don't think he was actually known as Mickey Mouse back in Steamboat Willie. I don't think that was... Yeah, that's also a good point. So I think that that's another side of it as well. Yeah. And also from my understanding is you can't even have Minky Mouse in your show that sounds like Mickey Mouse because I imagine that the voice is still trademarked as well. You would have to do something visually with Mickey Mouse to make him seem different from the Disney version as well. You'd have to give him a f***ing deep voice, like make him proper gruff. <laughs> and given, uh, just to bring us back on topic, the content of this game, it wouldn't surprise me at all if they've done some sort of yeah. monstrous version of Mickey Mouse. Zombie Mouse. So tell us about this game, man. I'm intrigued. What was it saying? So the video game, developed and published by Nightmare Forge, is known as Infestation Origins. Of course so, it is. Again. That's the most Disney thing, yes. <laughs> Well, I mean, it's exactly as you said. Yeah. They can't call this game the Mickey Mouse horror game. Exactly. But that's what it would be known as colloquially. Yeah, absolutely. The title is listed on Steam with a nebulous 2024 release date, at which point it will enter its early access stage. And if you actually look on the early access page, they say that they want the game to be fully ready and releasing in a polished state within the next 6 to 12 months following the early access period. The game pitches itself as a co-op horror in which you're an exterminator treating sinister infestations caused by twisted versions of classic characters and urban legends. Suffice to say, it sounds like Mickey Mouse won't necessarily be the only enemy we encounter in this game, and I'm actually wondering if we'll also be fighting, or more likely running, from a twisted version of Winnie the Pooh as well, considering he also entered the public domain back in 2022. I mean, uh, that was one that they actually did follow up with a horror movie based on Winnie the Pooh, releasing some mixed reviews, I'll say. Yeah, oh yeah, and, that's, uh, yeah. <laughs> also following this news, it's not just the video game, there's also two uh mickey mouse horror movies on their way uh but given the video game nature and focus of this podcast i figured i'd focus on the video game instead makes sense yeah i just had a quick look on the steam page there uh hilariously to me it says similar to remnant oh really okay you like remnant you like this there yeah you go. it's just like okay uh, I a bold recommendation i don't think that's going to be true looking at what the game looks like but hey that looks like quite a bit of fun it's not as a Mickey Mouse sole focus by the looks of it. As you say, it looks like there's a lot of other things. and Yeah, yeah. So it will be interesting to see what they come up with. When does Dumbo expire? That would be a good little DLC, wouldn't it? They are actually focusing on doing chapters for this game as well, so you might have correctly identified there that they may well be waiting for future IPs to collapse. Well, weren't all those early Disney films like all done within like six years of each other or something? So the, like, there is going to be a stage where you're just going to have yearly updates where it's just going to be adding characters. This <laughs> yeah. time it's Sword in the Stone. This is, you know, <laughs> Fantasia would be pretty dope to do a horror game about. You're probably right, yeah. And I guess obviously Pinocchio must have fallen into that category, what with Lies of P as well. Maybe. Although, like, yeah, I mean, I don't know. Yeah, maybe. There was already an Alice in Wonder Wonderland horror game, wasn't there? Yeah, so there's probably a lot of actual IPs out there that we just don't even know about that are already uh, available for anyone to use. They're kind of in the public domain. Or they were licensed. I don't know with some of them. That's the thing. So I would have thought Alice in Wonderland came out after Steamboat Willie. So, yeah, so, it's, pro yeah, so it's probably yeah, licensed no in that example. But the precedent is there for these Disney horror games, I guess is what I'm trying to say. 
100%. I'm totally here for it. So, uh, early footage of this game shows a hazard suit clad protagonist armed with fumigator guns seeking to defeat an evil horde in what appears to be a shop warehouse, before a twisted version of Mickey Mouse sneaks up and presumably eliminates the player. It'll be interesting to see how this one turns out. Will it be a new horror hit matching up to the likes of Five Nights at Freddy's and Lethal Company? Or is this a rushed and low effort cash grab hoping to build off of the name of an already well established character? I, for one, have my suspicions which one it might be, but only time will tell. Yeah, pretty much agree. We'll see. With that said, I think it's time that we moved on to Completionist Corner. Here we go for the Completionist's Corner. Before we cover the events of Mass Effect 3, let's cover some of the key events in Mass Effect 2. Commander Shepard, who is the hero of our story, is aided by a mysterious organisation known as Cerberus to travel through space to defeat an evil enemy known as the Collectors, after they had begun abducting humans from colony planets. On arrival at the Collector base, Shepard and their crew discover the Collectors have been working in alliance with an ancient race called the Reapers. In the events of Mass Effect 1, we learn that the Reapers are a highly advanced sentient race of synthetic organic alien starships who are seeking to wipe out all life from the galaxy every 50,000 years. The Collectors were working with the Reapers to abduct humans in order to create a new Reaper hybrid crossed with the human race. Shepard and their crew defeated the Collectors and managed to destroy the core of the new Reaper-human monstrosity, putting an end to the twisted experiment. Before departing, Shepard is contacted by the Elusive Man, the leader of Cerberus, which is the aforementioned shady organisation who resurrected Shepard from the grave and has been assisting in their missions throughout the events of Mass Effect 2. The Elusive Man provides Shepard with two options. Either they can continue with the plan to blow up the Collector base, or the whole place can be sterilised with radiation, causing all enemies inside to perish, whilst leaving the base behind and allowing Cerberus to reach the dangerous technology within. So James, in this playthrough, I ended up actually preserving the base with my renegade approach. I figured Cerberus could have their new play toy, and uh, I decided to flood the place with radiation. What about yourself, I assume, given uh, our massively divergent playthroughs? My paragon, Julius, man of the people, war hero that he is, was like, f*** you, elusive man. You too shady. I can't uh, trust you. I never trusted you, but, you know, thanks for rebuilding me and sh but... I never trusted you, and I, I blew that shit out. After arriving back on Shepard's ship, the Normandy, we are greeted by an ominous image of a giant Reaper fleet descending towards our galaxy. Clearly, the defeat of our collector foes has gotten the attention of the Reapers, and this marks the beginning of our story in Mass Effect 3. The actual story of Mass Effect 3 begins roughly six months following the events which have just been described, with our hero, Shepard, now relieved of duty and awaiting court-martial by the Alliance due to blowing up a Mass Effect relay. The destruction of the relay was successful in holding off the Reaper invasion, however it also inadvertently caused the death of around 30,000 Batarians. Oopsie. In your case it probably wasn't inadvertent. Yeah, I, I like to think in true, your yeah. character's lore it's just like, yeah, <laughs> f*** the Batarians. Do it, yeah. I hate those guys. F***ing four-eyed freaks. It's like six eyes, isn't it? <laughs> Oh god no. They got a lot of too eyes. Many. Too many eyes, too many eyes to trust. You don't like you don't like Turians either. I remember this from <laughs> Mass Effect 1. <laughs> Space racist. Should have kept Ashley alive. I should have. Honestly, I'm uh, we'll get into that yeah. a little bit later. I am regressing my decision a little bit. I know bit. what you're going to say, yeah. <laughs> 
Anyway, if you ask me, Shepard probably actually did those Batarians a favour, given that the Reapers were closing in on them, and their fate would have perhaps been worse had we stood by and done nothing. If that helps you sleep at night, mate, then that's fine. (laughs) So, all of these events that I've just spoken about were actually covered in the Arrival DLC, which we didn't go over during our coverage of Mass Effect 2, so just kind of bridging the gap there a little bit. The disgraced Commander Shepard, or for now just Shepard, or Shep, you know, we'll we'll go with whatever, Mike Julius, Jillian... Could be whatever. Mm. Bit overly familiar for me. I always demand that people call me Shepard at the bare minimum. Commander Shepard preferred. Yeah, no, that's fair enough. Different strokes for different folks, I guess. But either way, Shepard waits in their quarters in Vancouver on the planet Earth before being joined by a new character in this game, going by the name of James Vega. I'll say at this point, it's really weird reading James because I've always called him Vega. I've oh, right, always okay, called yeah. him Vega. This is really weird. Shep always calls him James in the cutscenes that I've experienced so far. Yeah, no, so, I know. Uh, it's, it's a me thing. I, I think because I'm yeah, called James. Yeah, yeah. So it's just like, yeah, no, f*** this guy. Yeah, <laughs> just to be clear, a lot of the time in this script, if we're talking about James, we're talking about James Vega, the video game yeah. James, not exactly. the video game James podcast host guy. Yeah. Trying to clear up that uh, confusion. James, not Bames, we'll go with. Um, but James tells Shepard that they have been summoned to a meeting by the Defence Committee. On their way to the meeting, we are also joined by our old friend. Well, you've written Captain Anderson, Admiral Anderson, dear boy. He's been promoted. Oh, of course. I did forget. Yes. But no, fair play. He'll always be Captain Anderson to me as well. I'd forgotten until I started playing Mass Effect 3 again. I won't lie. But Anderson tells us that the Alliance are beginning to mobilise their fleets in response to something big that's heading their way. At this point, Shepard guesses the Reapers have finally arrived. However, everyone else is reluctant to believe that the greatest threat to humanity has finally appeared, despite all of our warnings in the prior games. Oh, they just never listen. Frustrating. Uh, and it's funny, even Paragon Shep is like proper pissed about it, like the same as my Renegade yeah. Shep was. It's like, why didn't they just f***ing listen? Before we enter the meeting, we also bump into an old crewmate of ours, Caden Alenko, now promoted to a major within the Alliance. Major Alenko. Major Alenko, Major Wanker. <laughs> Tired of his bullshit as well. The, the person we both decided to save, I think for probably the same reason. I, I just don't like Ashley. Ashley was an annoying space racist. And I've got a soft spot for Caden because the voice of Caden is the voice of Carthanassi from um, KOTOR 1. Knights of the Old Republic, yeah. yeah, so, yeah. so I've got a soft spot for Caden, but I, I know what you're going to say. And... He's just too suspicious of me and he questions my authority and Shep does not appreciate that sh- Yeah. And he's kind of boring. It's not so much that, it's genuinely the disrespect and questioning my authority that Caden keeps on doing that is just intolerable to Gillian Shepard. Oh yeah, because he just still doesn't trust you because you work with Cerberus. Yeah, I'm just like, move past yeah. it buddy, that shit's in the past. I am your commander. So back to the story, Alliance Command informed Shepard that there were some very concerning reports coming in during his meeting with the Defence Committee. And contact has actually been lost with many colonies beyond the nearest relay. Shepard confirms everyone's worst fear that the Reapers have clearly returned, and as the threat is being discussed, word comes in that contact has just been lost with Earth's moon base, signalling that the threat is drawing closer and closer to home. We also see footage of the United Kingdom on Earth showing hordes of Reapers destroying cities, and as the meeting draws to a close, a large Reaper craft appears just outside the room we're in, and a large red laser punches through the wall, causing massive damage to the building and killing lots of people inside. We regroup with Admiral Anderson and make our way to escape on the Normandy. Shepard and Anderson fight their way past attacking husks, which, if you remember, are synthetic organic zombies created by Reapers from the bodies of captured humans, the ones that get their life sucked at them on the big spike. 
looks gruesome. Brutal. In this section, we also fight enemies known as cannibals, which resemble the husks but a lot stronger and bulky, preferring to use weapons rather than the basic melee attack of the husks. As Shepard and Anderson hold off a growing number of husks and cannibals, the Normandy passes over and radios for us to evacuate. Shepard jumps aboard, however Captain Anderson decides to stay behind to continue to fight off the invasion. And uh, it's notable also what happens just before we jump on the ship. Um, there's a moment where we find a small child in a vent. The kid sort of seems very scared of us. We offer to get them out, help them, and the kid's just like, no. I screamed at the kid to get out of here, so of course, that was my approach. Did, yeah. <laughs> Anderson's like, come on, we gotta go. We turn away for one second, kid's disappeared. Strange. Also notable because... Uh, as we get on the ship and leave, we've just got on the ship and we're just uh, saying goodbye to Anderson, basically. As we're saying goodbye, he hands Shepard a set of dog tags and reinstates us to the Alliance military. And uh, Shepard decides that they must travel to the Citadel to speak to the Council and request aid from the other alien races in fighting the Reaper threat, despite wanting to stay and help defend Earth. Just as we're leaving, we see the kid that we saw in the vent get into one of the shuttles that's being evacuated, and we see that shuttle get destroyed. Brutal stuff. Really has a profound effect on our character. Maybe mine, not yours. Is the reason that you're choosing to bring it up because that's the... Is there some sort of... Does it tie back to it throughout the game? I'm not, I'm not going to tell you anything else, but it's okay, worth fine, mentioning. Fine. Okay, fine. Now on board the Normandy, we are contacted by the Alliance Admiral Hackett, who tells us that we need to head to an Alliance outpost on Mars where we need to meet with another old friend, Liara Tassoni, who thinks she has discovered something to help us fight the Reapers. Perhaps some sort of ancient Prothean weapon? As we work our way towards the Prothean archives on Mars, joined by Caden and James, we encounter some trigger-happy Cerberus assault troopers who are busy executing workers on the planet. It seems we're not the only ones interested in this newly discovered technology to fight against the Reapers. Fighting our way past Cerberus forces, we finally run into Liara Tassoni, who confirms that she has discovered plans for a Prothean device which has the power to help us in our fight against the enemy. We must now travel with Liara into the archives to retrieve the weapon plans, but that's not going to be an easy task. Cerberus is hot on our tail and it's a race to the archives. Shepard orders James to head back and cover the exits, while Shepard, Caden and Liara make their way fighting through large squads of Cerberus troopers to get deeper into the archives. The team spot a suspicious woman through a monitor screen. The woman is wearing a Cerberus outfit, holding a pistol and is hurriedly interfering with a console. Liara identifies the woman as Dr. Eva Kaur, who arrived a week prior to this attack. At this point, it's pretty clear that Cerberus have been aided in their mission by sneakily installing one of their employees at the archives just before the assault. They've got a mole. Shortly after the team are stalled by Cerberus locking them out of the tram system, Caden removes the Cerberus soldier's helmet and discovers the trooper's eyes are glowing blue in a similar fashion to the husk zombies we've encountered previously. And the elusive man. Yeah, and Saren in the uh, first bit yeah. of the game as well. Cerberus has obviously been up to no good since the last time we crossed paths with them. Shepard is able to use the helmet to radio a nearby Cerberus squad and lose them to come collect our team by pretending to be a friendly squad seeking extraction. We finally arrive inside the archive and are greeted by a hologram communication from the Elusive Man, the boss of Cerberus. Like us, he is convinced that the tools the Protheans left behind are the key to defeating the Reapers. Unlike our leanings towards destroying the Reapers, the Elusive Man wants to use the technology to control and dominate them instead, in hopes of bringing humanity to, in his terms, the apex of evolution. The time to reflect on this revelation is cut short when Liara tells us that the files are no longer in the archive, and are in fact being erased and uploaded by a local source. As the team explore the area, we discover our Cerberus spy, Dr. Eva Kaur, and chase her through the halls of the facility. 
Our chase leads us to the rooftops where a Cerberus drop shuttle, also known as a Kodiak, swoops in to collect Dr. Eva. Just in the nick of time, James comes hurtling along in our own Kodiak and collides with the escaping Cerberus vehicle, sending it hurtling back towards us, with the wreckage nearly smushing our squad. A good thing for James that it missed, as I'm pretty sure killing your commander and two fellow squad members on their first real outing together would result in one hell of an alliance court-martial. Following the crash resulting in a burning wreckage, we assume that all is clear and start to dust ourselves off. Just in time for a sexy and very voluptuous robot lady to burst out from the wreckage and race towards our crew. Is this Dr. Eva, James? Yes. Or okay. what's left of Dr. Eva. Right, okay, that's good, that's good. I just wanted to... I, there, was a, there was a tiny question mark over my head whether that was the one and the same, and uh, I'm glad that you yeah. answered that for me. Caden is immediately grabbed and lifted into the air by the silver-skinned cybernetic Dommy Mummy. As she holds him, she waits for the elusive man to confirm her orders, to which she is ordered to dispose of our crewmate. And Caden is then rather unceremoniously and repeatedly smashed into the side of the destroyed ship before haphazardly being dropped to the ground. The robot makes a desperate dash towards Shepard, but we are successfully able to disable it before it manages to do more harm. A nice little slow-mo piece there. Yeah, like some f***ing Call of Duty Modern Warfare 2 bullshit. Yeah, it might have been more of like, you know, when someone's raging and there's like a slow motion of them screaming and just firing right. bullets. Uh, <laughs> that's the sort of imagery I got from it. I was getting a breach and clear set piece from Call of Duty. <laughs> oh yeah, that, oh yeah, that too. Yeah, that's fair enough. Shepard, James and Liara retrieve our fallen comrade Caden and the incapacitated robot lady, because of course you're going to take the, the sexy robot lady with you. <laughs> yeah, don't leave her behind, one of them. Of course you're... I, I need that. I need that for later. Yeah. <laughs> we then make a race towards the Citadel, in part because it is where the Counselor resides and we need their help, but also because Caden is in dire need of medical facilities. So at this point in the level, uh, there's a couple of things that you can do, uh, namely go straight towards the council and convince them to help, but you can also stop to pay your buddy Caden a visit. I wanted to bring this up, James, because uh, i got to be honest, I was really fed up with Caden at this point, constantly disrespecting me and questioning my authority and my decision-making. So I've just left him in the hospital and I've gone over to uh, speak to the council. So did you go and visit your, your buddy in the yeah, wing? Of course I did. Of course yeah. I did. Yeah. <laughs> So what happens there then? Fill me in. Uh, he's in a coma. All right, okay. okay. Um, but you have like a little chat with him. In a coma? Yeah, like, you know, you're just like talking to him, sort of like, if you can hear me. All oh, right, okay. Type okay. thing. And I was obviously very nice. I picked the nice option, like, you know, I know we haven't always seen eye to eye, but, you know, we've been through a lot and all the, you know, all this positive stuff. I think there is one where you can be like, don't you f***ing die on me, you dick. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, so you could still have been a renegade had you done it. But it's the start of a side quest type thing that you probably don't want to do so it's fine uh, i don't i don't think it's a spoiler to say that it's to get him instated back as a recruitable crewmate i had a feeling that that might be yeah. the uh the thing and that's why i just had no interest in bothering with it you probably don't care uh because you get more sort of side missions to be like oh you can go check on Caden now he's awake sort of thing. right right but you might still get that stuff but no it, it doesn't really make that much of a difference but i did go there first fine fine said hi to Caden, like you know bought an extra metagel thing pretty well pretty much he's he was asleep so he was very like <laughs> he, he wasn't really con contributing to the conversation let's just say uh but then i went to the um the council chambers okay okay so let's get on to that so the council are made up of representatives from each of the four member species the turians salarians asari and humans and they form the governing body of the citadel so as instructed by admiral anderson and admiral hackett Shepard meets with the Council to ask for their help against the Reaper threat. 
Despite the fact Earth is undergoing a full-scale assault, Shepard is unable to convince the majority of the council members to agree to help the humans fight back. They're obviously too preoccupied with the struggles of their own races and won't lend any aid to us. After the council meeting, Shepard is approached by the Turian council representative, who seems to want to help us. He suggests that a Turian primarch, in, in layman terms, a Turian leader, could be convinced to put in a good word to the council for us. The Turian representative goes on to say that the Primarch, known as Fedorian, is a big supporter of extreme solutions, and his views will hold sway with the council's ultimate decision. Unfortunately, Fedorian wasn't able to escape the Palavan system, the homeworld of the Turians, before the Reapers attacked, and he is now stranded on Palavan's largest moon awaiting rescue. Before leaving us, the Turian council member reinstates our spectre status. For me, the whole council did before the Turian came back because I was... Oh, I see, I see. Because I saved them in the first one. Granting us several perks and additional resources to help us in our missions. So at this point in the game, as you're heading off to the planet, you actually enter uh, another dream sequence where you're following the child that James mentioned earlier that we initially encountered in the vent and then saw get blown up uh, trying to escape Earth. So uh, you're kind of walking through a wooded area and there's a kid crying a lot around and uh, I was kind of just following it through the woods. I was got to say, I, I kind of at this point in the game, there was a couple uh, kind of niggles that I already had uh, with the game and I was enjoying some of the slower set PC things less. So I guess the only reason why I thought to include this bit here was just to say that it took me out of the game a little bit and I just wanted to hurry on with uh, with the rest of the game. But it sounds like uh, there might be some sort of profound revelation coming or something that affects Shepard. <laughs> Yeah, I know what you mean, man. Like, I, I didn't like the pacing of this bit because you can't sprint in it. You can't really skip anything in it. You just have to follow the kid. And then it's, it's just an interactive cutscene. It was one of the first times that the game has actually done stuff like that. They have absolutely made this game more cinematic. And in some ways it benefits from it. But then in other bits like this, I find that the pace of the game just drops through the floor. It's a bit of an odd one. I will say persevere. It is a theme. Right, okay. I don't know if it's, the payoff's really worth it, but it is a thing. Okay, right, okay, yeah, we'll see. Because I, I can't remember most of it, but I do remember that there's at least one more dream, and then there's some other stuff that goes down. Right, okay. But yeah, I agree with you completely. The pacing of it is really weird, and it's kind of done in between you doing like a couple of major missions. It's really odd. Also, um, outside of the main missions of the game, I also met my new specialist, Samantha Trainer, who uh, I actually assumed was my new specialist, given that my old one, I think her name was... Oh, God, I can't remember her name. Was it Helena? Kelly Chambers. Kelly. Kelly. Oh, yeah, that was it. Kelly! Yeah, Kelly. Yeah. Good old Kelly. And it, she got uh, murdered. Uh, no one made it. In your Pretty one. much. The main crew of the Normandy all got... Uh, if Shaquist died in your one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Everyone died in my one, pretty much. Uh, except for Samantha Trainer, She is now in this one and she is my new assistant. She wasn't in to, to, to even have a chance of getting killed. Oh, I thought she was meant to be like crew, but she was kind of like skeleton crew that didn't really work there. And like, she wasn't actually, I think she says something to you, like the majority of the crew weren't on the Normandy at the time. So I thought she was kind of like a, she was like a house elf. Um, if you talk to her more, you find out that she's actually, um, she's part of the crew that was assigned to rebranding the Normandy basically after Cerberus because it's a Cerberus ship. Yeah, they right? say that she says that she's like stripped out all the Cerberus parts and things like that. Yeah, and redone it all and made it up to Alliance spec and then because it was so sudden that Shepard was reinstated and they had to leave Earth, basically everyone that was on the ship just just became the crew. Right. Okay, I think I misunderstood yeah. that then because I did I did bother to speak yeah. to her. I did like sort of try, I was trying to find out more about her character because uh 
I was interested to meet my new assistant. I also kind of wanted to know whether this was a character that was unique to my game or not, but it doesn't sound like that's the case. It's not the case, no. Um, so where's Kelly in your game? She's on the Citadel and helping out refugees. Oh, right. Okay, fine. And you can you get a choice of you can either tell her to carry on helping the refugees or insist that she changes her identity first. <laughs> And changing her identity is actually the renegade option, but I pick it because I know that's the one that makes her survive. Right, okay, okay. If you pick the first one, she carries on going by Kelly Chambers. She has that distinct red hair, as you remember. Eventually Cerberus find and kill her. Oh, right, okay. If you get her to change her identity, her hair becomes blonde. She changes her name to, like, Felicia or something (laughs) like that. And then she can carry on working with the refugees at the Citadel. It's, It's just, it's a nothing thing, but it's just quite a nice touch. She also gave me about my fish. Because oh, she always right. looks after your fish in Mass Effect 2. Right, okay. And she because you still have the fish yes. tank, she's like, I, I, I saved all your fish, here they are. Oh, that's cool, that's interesting. Yeah, because I was looking at my yeah. completely empty fish tank, wondering where they'd all gone, and uh, that makes sense. I guess that's yeah. an opportunity I won't have in this one. Did you get the space hamster in 2 as well? I don't think so, no. Oh, okay. You can buy a space hamster in 2 and you find it running around where Jack used to hang out at the bottom of oh, the really? room. You can <laughs> that's pick it cool. up and get that back, yeah. And you, did you buy the model ships in Mass Effect 2 as well? I, I did definitely bought one model ship. I don't know if I bought a collection of them. You can find them in the Normandy and then they come back. Right. Okay. It's quite cool. Okay. Yeah, no, I have definitely not been kind of doing a, a very completionist run on this in terms of engaging with all of the uh, the shot bot stuff. Oh, no, but that, that's just because I'm a, I'm a loser and I like my, my captain's cabin to be full of everything. I've been kind of very much role-playing this character as well, and I just kind of consider that a renegade shepherd just wouldn't do that stuff. Like, wouldn't go see Caden in hospital and wouldn't show, like an undue amount of interest in anyone else than the main people that they need to manipulate and get on board sort of thing yeah you see whereas whereas julius is a mark <laughs> yeah. he'll go see, he'll just like try and save everyone go see everyone he's worried about his model ship collection even if it seems like a trap he'll still wade in sort of thing just because obviously you're gonna you're oh, gonna yeah. win eventually it was a pretty big ask for Jillian to even bother with all the loyalty missions i'll be honest i'm surprised you still have the normandy <laughs> I, I honestly didn't think in your Mass Effect 2 run that you'd even bother like getting all the upgrades. <laughs> oh, I wanted to get the upgrades. More power, more better. Yeah. But that's that was yeah. about it. <laughs> <laughs> so, and speaking of uh, new technology on board the Normandy, the, the other notable sort of change to the game that you may as well mention at this point now we've unlocked space travel somewhat, is that um, as opposed to where you, in Mass Effect 2 where you just go and scan loads of planets and you'd get loads of resource points that you could send a scanner down to, you now have a ship pulse system whereby you enter a system, you press a button and your ship will pulse and you can pick up things on your scanner. It can be simple items such as extra fuel, but it can also be uh, sort of places of interest or assets, which we'll get onto a bit later. And what's interesting is on the map, um, some of the systems have a little reaper over them. And in those systems, if you do the scanner too many times, um, the Reapers can become aware of you and then eventually enter the system you're in and chase you down. And if they catch you, it's game over. Oh, it's game over. Okay, I was wondering about that. Allegedly. I've never been caught. Right. Oh, okay, okay. I think it's game over. It does say that when they enter the system, you're supposed to leave, complete a mission, and they'll have probably disappeared by that point. You don't even need to complete a mission, I don't think. I think you can just doss around for a bit in other systems, yeah. Right, right. But yeah, what it does ultimately is it makes things a lot quicker, but the, the way they've reshaped resources and changed it to assets, which, as I say, we'll get onto a bit later, it's a lot more streamlined, a lot less grindy. I really liked it. I thought that it was a cool concept that if you want to, you know, grind and try and explore every little thing, the game's not going to make it easy for you either. They're going to put Reapers in your systems and make you think about how you explore stuff. 
cool idea although i will say it's still quite easy so don't, so don't worry about it too much guys <laughs> it's not too bad you can get away from the reapers quite easily so in our continuing search for primark fedorian on entering the system we can see that palavan is being bombarded by a reaper attack with countless explosions and fiery battles taking place in the orbit of the planet the defending Turians are certainly taking a beating from the onslaught of the Reapers, and Shepard arrives on base and meets with General Corinthus, who tells us that Primarch Fedorian is actually dead, killed just about an hour ago as his shuttle tried to leave the moon. The Turian hierarchy dictates that the responsibility of Primarch will now fall to another Turian on the moon, so Shepard sets out to find the next Primarch somewhere else. Before we set out, a familiar voice sounds behind us, offering to help us find the next Primark. It's my favourite squad mate, my guy, my bud, the man who accompanies me on all my missions in every single playthrough, Garrus Vakarian, the Turian legend, Archangel, whatever you want to call him. That's right, and he miraculously survived my campaign, so I got to see him again too. Oh, that's good. I would have been very emotional if Garrus wasn't in your <laughs> game. That would have been such a shame for you. You just stuck with Caden, no Garrus. Oh my god, I don't know what I'd do. Yeah. Well, no, Caden's currently in a coma and I'm leaving him there. Word from Palavan Command comes in to let us know that the next Primarch is a Turian general by the name of Adrian Victus, who, much like his predecessor, also favours a somewhat brash military approach. Very renegade, in fact, so I can imagine that Will and him will get on very well. Yeah, immediately I'm thinking, like, this sounds like just the man for the job. We'll get along famously. We're also radioed by the pilot of the Normandy, and another familiar face from the previous games, our old partner Joker. Joker lets us know that the Normandy is experiencing some strange faults with its systems, and he isn't able to locate the source of the problem. Liara offers to travel back to the Normandy to investigate, leaving us with our squadmates for this mission, James and Garrus. Throughout this mission, Shepard fights against the attacking Reaper ground forces, mainly composed of husks and cannibals, with one notable exception, the Brutes. So these guys are like a giant lumbering charging enemy with brutally fast melee attacks, and they serve as the mini-boss for a few of the firefights in this level, mostly due to their very chunky health bar. That's a bit of a grandiose term, mini-boss. They do become mobs later. After defeating a particularly difficult section involving a variety of enemies, including two brutes, we finally rendezvous with Primarch Victus, and we manage to convince him to leave us to chair a summit and lead the Turians to war against the Reapers. Time to head back to the Normandy with our two new Turian buddies. And at that point, I think we'll leave it here for this week. Find out about the continuing adventures of Shepard and the crew in episode 74. We're off. Off to the races, it's begun. Prologue well and truly completed. Time to get into the meat of things. Yes, and I think it's worth just quickly discussing some of the changes to Mass Effect from Mass Effect 2 to 3. Is there anything particularly that you wanted to get started on? Well, I think because we've already mentioned it, it might be worth starting off with the way they've done resources in this game. So in previous games, you, you scan planets, as we said, collect elements, minerals, all this good stuff, and it can be used to buy upgrades and things like that. Yeah. In this game, upgrades are purely done by credits, the money in the game. And instead of scanning for minerals and things, you scan for things that are called war assets. And this can be anything from workers to help build this mysterious Protheum weapon that we found the tools for. You can find workers to help on that. You can find various like legendary troops. You can find squads. And it's just all adds to your war asset counter, which can be tracked in a special terminal in a room on the Normandy, which you need to get over a certain level as the game progresses to be able to actually even have a chance against the Reapers. That's right, yes. A little bar fills up with a marker that's your bare minimum war assets needed before you can take them on. 
what's neat about this as well is that it contains a bunch of things that reference back to things you've done in one and two okay okay so some of the basic like i won't go into all of them obviously but one of the ones that i think will be quite different for you and i is because i in mass effect one decided to save the council three of my alliance battle fleets have a third less troops because they all died saving the council right okay okay but because it's mass effect there's always a trade-off my trade-off was that the council survived and I'm sure there's another trade-off coming. I'm sure something positive will happen from it. But in your one, I bet it doesn't have that updated message and you've got a full set of human squadrons, but you won't get what I get later. Sure thing. That makes sense. You see what I mean? And I like how that all links back. And because a lot of your crewmates died, you're not going to have... Like, Jack died in your one, I think. They did, sadly. So you're not going to have Jack as a war asset and things like that. Just quite a nice little touch, I thought. Yeah, I imagine, uh, given all the crazy shit I did in Mass Effect 2, the amount of allies that I've got that are either willing to trust me or still alive is pretty dwindling at this point. Yeah, you're, you're going to have some fun with that, I think. It could be, it's going to be really interesting to see. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, it just makes everything a lot more streamlined. It's a lot more user-friendly, a lot less grindy. Typically, there's only, certainly in the planets I've explored so far, or the systems I've explored, there's only two resources per system. And it just makes... Like the grind of doing that if you're a min-maxer like I am that just wants to get as much resource as possible. It just makes that a lot easier, which I appreciate. And for me, coming from the outside, it just gives me a sense that something really big's happening that I need to prepare for. And it's constantly looming that it's such a large objective in the game that I need to attain these war assets. I can see that uh, even if it's not necessarily true, um, it's something that is definitely leading me to believe like I really need to prepare for this big fight coming. And uh, I'm buying into it. I like it. Are there any sort of uh, new systems that you particularly enjoyed so far? Yeah, actually. Uh, so one of the things that I wanted to talk about, and it's something that I'm sure we've talked about off pod and on pod together, something that I've been keen to explore in Mass Effect 3, just the kind of increases in terms of environmental mantling, climbing over objects, movement options, just little things like that, like being able to double tap a button to hop over cover quickly rather than having to take cover behind it and then slowly press the button to jump over, which you can do now. Uh, you've even got things like a dodge roll which i definitely wasn't expecting it's kind of suddenly feeling a lot closer to gears of war than it's ever done before it's 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 one of those things where uh they almost didn't need to do that like i'm glad that they did that's something that i wouldn't have necessarily asked for in a mass effect game um i was surprised to see it included in this one but it's only a good thing as well extra maneuverability is always good what do you think of the division style run from cover to cover as well that was a cool little thing uh it's a little clunky uh more so than division obviously uh but you know it's cool that it's in there it definitely works a lot better i also really liked the gears of war style if you're on a cover and an enemy is hiding on the opposite side of that cover or even just standing by it you can grab them yank them over the cover and kind of assassinate them which is uh, omni blade cool, the uh, out of them. yeah i really like that that's very neat yeah i never use it but it's really cool that it's there because I'm a sniper, so when am I going to use that? But yeah, it's really cool. fair play. I mean, there are like a couple set piece moments where like they give you the opportunity to do it, but yeah, it's by no means like a revolutionary thing. It's just a nice thing to have. Not something you'd necessarily expect from Mass Effect having played the first two games. And speaking of that as well, the upgraded melee punch, because melee was always pretty weak, I will say, in Mass Effect. Not necessarily in terms of power. You could do some pretty good damage with it if you specced in the right directions, but it was more just that the animation was a bit weak. It never felt like it had much impact. A lot of the time enemies didn't always physically react to 
it either. So it was a bit of a mixed bag. Whereas in this one, if you hold the melee button, you can do a charged biotic blast, which often sends people ragdolling. So that's quite a notable improvement as well. well I imagine that's probably your specific one. Oh, is it my specific one? What have you got? I'm not a biotic, so I don't know. I, I've not done a charged attack, so I don't know. Right, okay. Yeah, give it a go. I get the feeling that there is a standard thing across the game. I don't think that that is a class-specific thing. Happy to hear otherwise, but I get the feeling that that is just one of those, like, they put that for all the characters. You might be right, but yeah, I, I when my melee attack is I hit them with my gun. Yeah, same as mine. Yeah, my one's just so, a boring melee attack like that. Try it next time you're playing. I'll be interesting to see if they shoot a thing out of their hand that's just like a repulsor yeah. blast a bit. Well, mine could be tech because I'm an infiltrator, so I could have a tech one that basically is the same, but maybe a different color or something. Yeah, it was just like it was a tutorial section in the game where it clearly wants you to like attack an enemy with a bit more range than normal. Uh, in your game, you probably just shot it. But if you let the tutorial thing play out, it wants you to charge your punch and learn that attack. And it's a cool little feature. It definitely just adds a bit more depth to when you run up to an enemy, you don't just limply punch it now. You can kind of knock it off its feet and do a bit more damage, which is fun. Always good. And I guess the only other thing that I wanted to mention that I noticed that was new from Mass Effect 2 is that the skill trees diverge a little bit. Some of your different skills in the game, you actually make a choice between, for instance, going towards like an area of effect bonus or a damage bonus. Mass Effect 2 did have like a kind of a more basic version of this where the final skill point you would assigned to one of two options and they would typically be like a elemental chance effect up versus raw power up or something like that sometimes yeah. affecting another target that happens a little bit earlier in your skill trees in mass effect 3 i think after the fourth or fifth skill point you start making choices between uh what direction you want your different abilities to go in the game um a very minor thing but uh yeah no welcome change cool thing to see yeah, nice because you can do it for your companions as well. So if you have companions with similar powers, you can make them a little bit different. Absolutely right. It's cool to see two sides of the same skill tree with different characters. I was doing that on Mass Effect 2. If I noticed two characters had the same things, then I would max out their powers and then experiment with which of the alternate options was better. And I'll probably do that to some degree in Mass Effect 3 as well. Yeah, and speaking of powers, did you um, start the game with loads of skill points? Started the game with like 25 skill points, I think, for Shepard. It was around that number. And pretty oh, really? much all of my powers unlocked with half of the skill trees filled up as well. I had all of my biotic yeah. powers really yeah you had so you had your old skill tree and all the skill points i um just before i'd finished my save i wiped it so i reset my skills so i had 61 skill points oh my god be, damn it's just like with nothing filled though so i probably had similar to what you had yeah but i i was able to just repick my skill tree based on the new <laughs> skills that's cool nice touch i gotta say i was feeling very powerful in this game i don't recall there being a difficulty select before i started this game and I was absolutely stomping through the early game and I was just not finding it fun enough. Those biotic powers are just so powerful early on um, yeah. that I had to whack the game up to hard difficulty um, just yeah. to like feel like I'm actually not just absolutely walking through the game. It's in your settings. Yeah, yeah. you're right. I don't, I don't know there's an option right at the start, but you can change it in settings. I'm enjoying the game a lot more as a result of playing it on a harder difficulty. I think I've played them all on hard so far. I thought you said you dropped down to normal for two. You might be right. I think there maybe was a section in two that I dropped down to normal, maybe. That might be what I'm thinking of. Yeah. I know you played one hard. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think there must have been. I think you're right. I think there was a section that I put it down to normal. But for this one, I've, I've popped it up to hard. And I'm not beyond switching it down uh, after a particularly tricky bit. Yeah. But at the same time, um, yeah, I'm kind of enjoying the challenge that that mode is giving me. I actually occasionally have to take cover and think about my attacks a bit more rather than <laughs> yeah. just mindlessly firing everything I've got all the time. I'm just keeping it on normal so that I can do all of the content. <laughs> yeah, to be fair, I mean, it's probably a it's good one. I know what you mean, though. You don't want to get stuck on a section if you're bothering with all the side content, whereas yeah. I'm kind of beelining slightly. I'm definitely not beelining, but I'm I know following mean, the main yeah. campaign a lot more, so I think if I get stuck on a section, it'll probably level out in terms of playtime a bit. But I think with all that said, that pretty much wraps up our coverage of Mass Effect 3 for this week. And with that, I think it's probably time to close off the show as well. You can, as always, find the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and pretty much anywhere else you get your podcasts by searching for Total Pod Mode. We also post regular video content of our playthroughs, stream highlights, as well as the podcast on our YouTube channel, Total Pod Mode. You can also find us on X by searching for at Total Pod Mode, or one word. And whilst you're there, you can find me at Mr. Bames, and I'm also on Twitch under twitch.tv forward slash Mr. Bames underscore TPF. And you can find me at Hoodafunk on X, and I'm also on Twitch under twitch.tv forward slash hoodafunk and just with a final new year's message for our listeners thank you for sticking around and supporting the podcast we really do appreciate you if you'd like to continue to support the podcast and if you haven't done so already please drop us a like and subscribe on the various social medias we just listed there if you'd like to check out some of the video content for this podcast we post that on our youtube channel and i'll actually be posting part of my run throughs of mass effect free on the youtube channel there so if you want more total pod mode content that is definitely the place to be and hey uh whilst you're there and feeling supportive why not drop us a five star rating on our various podcast platforms as well spotify and apple podcasts would make the biggest difference to us we really do appreciate all the ratings we've received so far and uh please guys if you want to support the podcast that is the best way of doing it agreed and we'd really appreciate it okay james i think it's time that we closed off the episode thanks to everyone for listening we'll see you guys next week take care everyone goodbye